0: guys, I'm Paul Bates and this is the Fermentation Podcast. Join me on this journey to put fermentation into practice, create culture, and revive this lost art that connects all of us to our cultures of the past. Today is Friday, February 6, 2015, and this is episode number 23. So we've talked about making pickles on the show extensively and have made pickles using the old school mason jar method. Well, today I'm on the show someone who has a much better way of fermenting things when it comes to anaerobic fermentation and getting better results. Karen Ross is the creator of the Probiotic Jar, which has been around for a couple years now and is an airlock jar system that's based on the very popular Phyto jars. It's a nice interview and you can tell that Karen has quite a passion for absolutely pure ferments free of oxygen, which discourages mold and the toxic chemicals that mold produces. These chemicals cause some people, including Karen, so many health problems and allergies, which is what led Karen in the first place to create a better way using the highest standards possible. But before we get into that conversation, all the topics and links for today's show will be in the show notes at fermentationpodcast.com. If you'd like to get a hold of me, email me at paul at fermentationpodcast.com or go to the website and click on the contact button on the top. You can also connect to me on Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and Twitter. Just go to fermentationpodcast.com and you should see the links in the sidebar. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, just head out to the website and click on the guest button on the top and fill out the guest submission form there. Before we get Karen on the line to talk about healthy ferments and tons on health in general, I wanted to mention something that circulates around the fermentation community just occasionally. There are several methods and tools you can use to ferment something, and each of these methods fall on a scale of good, better, and best. With best being much farther on the right, and better being closer to good. To quote Melanie Hoffman of Pickle Me Too, when starting out, you might start the way I did, and I still do, using mason jars with a small jelly jar inside. This method, I think, gets people started, whereas they might not have even started in the first place. You can move up the scale and use other airlocks that might or might not be of a high quality might or might not be airtight, and might or might not have a a great way to scoop off oxidized brine with the way the probiotic jar has with its glass bowl. What I'm saying is that I consider the probiotic jar to be just about as close to best as you can get, and while there still might be some other tools that come online in the future that might be just as good, I'll be using the probiotic jar as part of my system. That doesn't mean I won't still be using the old school mason jar method, or even experimenting with some other tools as I keep building my fermenting systems, but I think the probiotic jar has a place in everyone's fermentary and and a place in everyone's tools. One other thing I want to say is that yes, the probiotic jar does seem to be more expensive than other tools, but if you already have Fido or Kilner jars, then just get the lid kits for the jars you already have. The other thing is if you have some extreme health problems or a hypersensitivity to mold and chemicals, the system will do the best for you and will last a long time. When I was talking off air to Karen, she mentioned that you can actually buy a phyto jar and drill a hole in the top yourself. The only thing is, if you knew the mountain of lids that she went through that were destroyed just trying to perfect the system to get an absolutely smooth hole to guarantee it was airtight, you'd be pretty shocked. And she said sometime in the future, she'll have to post a picture of the broken jar lid she had that failed while perfecting it. Anyways, you can definitely try, but I think it would be much more worth your time to invest in lids that are already perfect and have the peace of mind. The other thing is you're also supporting a small family-based fermentation business that has health at the top of their priorities in anything they do. Anyways, I just wanted to mention that since some people might say they're overpriced or not necessary, I'm here to say they're high quality and on my first ferment I just tried making pickled jalapeno peppers, I was pretty impressed with the quality of the final result and it looked beautiful on the counter while it was fermenting. The other thing I have on my list to bring up is something more fun. Karen wanted me to mention that they're doing a giveaway on their website for one free probiotic jar system. They're giving you the choice of whatever size you'd like if you win, and they're even throwing in free delivery. So if you'd like to throw your ticket into the raffle, so to speak, head over to their website, probioticjar.com, and click on the Shop Now button to find the giveaway. Otherwise, I'll put the link directly to the raffle in the show notes toward the end. Also, if you're an international listener and, you know, you enter the raffle and you win, then for you, it's just a lid kit just to let you know. I guess the international shipping is kind of pricey. So, with all that, I have Karen Ross on the line who is the creator of the probiotic jar, helping you to create the highest quality ferments possible using the anaerobic airlock method. Hey, Karen, welcome to the fermentation podcast
1: thank you it's an honor to be here
0: so for those who don't you know know who you are, can you give the audience just a brief introduction of yourself and you know a little bit about your company?
1: Sure, I can. Uh, Ten years ago or so, we started Wellness, Alaska as a resource. And a point of contact for people looking for ways to improve the quality of their health. And during that journey and teaching health and wellness classes and uh, teaching people how to to take care of their health and how to protect their health themselves, I stumbled into the fermenting through, you know, initially it was the Nourishing Traditions book by Sally Fallon Morrell. And uh, that is just an outstanding resource of the right way to feed your body. And she has some uh, recipes in there for how to ferment and some uh, explanations of why it's beneficial and, and why it's really important to treat your food properly. I was teaching classes about soaking and sprouting grains for better health. I learned how to make sourdough bread, and I started teaching people how to do that. I started to learn how important organic food is and not having food with pesticides because of how that affects the intestinal flora. And I learned about fermenting food and how important that was. But I had some health problems of my own and I wasn't able to eat the ferments that I did the way that Sally teaches in the nourishing traditions. And then along the way, I learned that all the ferments are more effective and no mold if you can do it anaerobically. So I started looking for vessels that work, you know, without letting oxygen into the jar and then learned that it was important not to have pressure on the microbes. And, you know, just in the learning about how real food cultures the healthy bacteria that we need to support our digestion and to support our immune systems and everything else that, I mean, it supports turning on genes that you want and turning off gene expressions that you don't want. It's just phenomenal how much influence the gut microbes have on our health. And so, you know, I feel like fermenting is, is kind of a missing food group in our diet. And, you know, up until, Oh, I don't know, a hundred years ago, fermenting was constant and, and, a regular thing in our culture. But then we come along with the industrialization of uh, food products and, you know, everything becomes instant and easy and drive through and we're no longer getting the, the benefits that you need. You need for your health.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I've So much. So now when you show somebody, a uh, uh, something that you pickled or something that you fermented, they almost kind of cringe at first. Like, Oh, what do you mean you've left it on the counter?
1: Oh, absolutely. We've grown up in a food poisoning, sterilize everything culture. I mean, when when I was young, my mom was aggressive about cleaning everything and making sure that we weren't exposed to germs. When, you know, by the time my, my babies were born, we learned that, you know, you need to let them play in the garden. They're going to eat a little dirt. That's not a bad thing. And what a huge difference it makes in health. Absolutely.
0: It seems like probably there's a, a lot of people getting food allergies. And obviously, you know, with the pesticides and herbicides and everything that they spray on it, you know, using organic is a lot better. But fermenting something and giving it life and just kind of partaking in that, I definitely think it contributes a lot to your health. So recently, I guess just to go a little more into, you know, the company Probiotic Jar, I had a couple people mention you recently. Like uh, the last person I had on, Lisa Herndon of Lisa's Counterculture. She was a a lot of fun to talk to. And she had um, mentioned you and she just loves a probiotic jar. And uh, I even had somebody named Lauren Timkin of Cultured and Saucy. She uh, emailed me and asked to bring you on the show. Yeah, I guess she really likes your message and, you know, what you teach. So as the audience knows well, I've still been using, you know, the old school mason jar method to pickle things. But um not too long ago you actually sent me an email hearing, you know, about kind of what I was doing and you were like, Hey, you know, you should try the probiotic jar, you know, I'll send you a lid and and I've been using it the past uh I guess week now and I have to say, it's almost like a, a science experiment. It's, it's just this beautiful thing that sits on your counter. So yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. But anyways, uh, I guess going back to Lisa, how did you guys actually meet?
1: Well, way back, you know, in my developing of the probiotic jar, I was looking for a vessel that was anaerobic and that sealed consistently. And we decided to develop the probiotic jar because in the search, it seemed to be a hit miss. And I tried a few products and and didn't have great success, didn't have consistent success. And so we embarked on this journey. And I was on a, you know, just surfing the web one day looking at different blogs about fermenting and and stuff. And there was a discussion somewhere. And I couldn't even tell you where if my life depended on it. On this blog, they were discussing the difficulty finding a vessel that was not going to leak oxygen and where they could expect consistent results. And I just couldn't help. We were still just in the engineering phase. We were going to find a way to do this hole through the glass uh, so that it wasn't going to leak at ever, that every jar we made was going to be a good jar. And, you know, initially I developed the probiotic jar because I really wanted a, a consistently sealing vessel for my family. And then I found out what it was going to cost to actually produce it. So I figured I'd put it on the web and sell some of them so I could pay for it. And, you know, one thing turned into another and here we are today. But back back to how I met Lisa on this uh thing, they were talking about not being able to find a jar. So I couldn't resist the temptation to post and say, just hang on. We have one coming on the market in a couple of months. You know, so they started asking questions and And I answered them the best I could. And I said, well, you know, the the trick is getting a really, really smooth hole that's exactly the right size that doesn't have chips going down into the vertical wall of the hole in the glass. So that when you put your grommet in, it actually seals when you stick the airlock in there. And uh, anyhow, the lady that owned the blog contacted Lisa and said, hey, here's the person you've been looking for. Somebody's doing it, finally. And so... Um, Lisa contacted me. I actually didn't have any contact, direct contact information, and she hunted me down and phoned me out of the blue, and we developed an awesome relationship. Then she came out with her book featuring the probiotic jar after we had it on the market, and she's just an awesome person. I've learned so much from her. She's just a wealth of information and so kind and compassionate. And, you know, if I had to depend on anybody, if I was in a health crisis, I really would talk to her before making any decisions. She's just really, she's really knowledgeable and, you know, has a broad approach. She doesn't just do one thing. And I really appreciate that about her. I could tell that in the
0: book. And then, uh, you know, her recipe book, which had huge amounts of recipes and then, you know, a bunch of other how-tos and things. That's a a pretty cool little book there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she also teaches workshops. And um, yeah, actually, after the fact, later after we hung up, I kind of talked to her and she said that they actually do uh, blood testing of different things to see what's actually going on in your body. It's, it's not just, you know, how do you feel? It's actually a scientific kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, it helps you get better so much faster when you're not just stumbling around in the, in the dark without really some good information. Yeah, I just I think blood testing is great. It's not that expensive and you get really good information and it's a really good starting point for, you know, what to do so that you can feel better.
0: Yeah, it gives you a, a good baseline. And then from there you can tell, you know, try something, do another blood test, see how how it's going. Mm-hmm. So on the, the probiotic jar, what made you actually decide to choose the phyto style jars, you know, rather than a mason jar for the probiotic jar?
1: Well, the number one consideration was availability. It was really important well actually secondary that's a secondary the, the primary reason is that a screw top jar is does not create a hermetic seal it absolutely leaks you know in medical applications that kind of of uh, fit is never used when gas exchange elimination is required so that was the number one consideration so then in looking at the at the bail top bail spring clamp type jars The second issue was making sure that it was going to be available internationally, that everywhere in the world, within reason, people can buy this jar. That way we can equip everybody to ferment and they only have to buy a lid that fits the jar. They don't have to buy the whole jar. if They can get the big part locally, save a huge amount of shipping. I mean, we are able to ship the probiotic jar lid kits around the world. We have shipped to South Africa. We've shipped to 26 different countries now maybe more than that, but those, I know that we're at least 26 and we're able to do a fairly large order of shipping for under a hundred dollars anywhere in the world. And if we had to ship that many units complete with jars, it would cost hundreds of dollars in shipping. Then you'd have big breakage problems. It just that so that was huge, and and I didn't even have the vision for a worldwide business when we started. I found out that you know there are lots of English speaking countries where people are wanting to do this, and I thought, well, we might as well go with something that doesn't limit us. So that was the the basic exactly.
0: Before I guess we started this conversation, you said I thought you were only in one place, but uh, apparently you're all over the country.
1: We have we have a shipping center in a few shipping centers in Ohio. We're looking to expand a shipping center into the West. We have a shipping center in Alaska, of course. That's where we're based. And we have shipping centers in the UK and Canada and South Africa. So we're we're actually all over the world in terms of, of being able to ship product. So that's exciting to me. I never really thought that we would be there in less than two years from launch.
0: Wow, so you've only been around for two years. Yes. That's pretty amazing.
1: Two years ago today, we were still in the engineering phase
0: it's great to actually see, you know, a fermentation company being built and actually getting out there and growing. So yeah, that's that must be something. On mm. um, I guess, you know, pickling things and fermentation, at least to me, to my mind, there's really only a small amount of ways really to pickle something, you know, other than the ancient methods of pit fermentation and, and things like that. But the only ways I I've found are, you know, the old school mason jar method which I've been using, which is kind of anaerobic, you know, under the water, but then it's still exposed to air. And I've actually gotten mold, you know, a few times using that method. You know, it works most of the time, but not always. Mm-hmm. Then there's, you know, the new crowdsource coming out, the stainless steel lid for the mason jars. And then there's the harsh style uh, ceramic crocks that have the water moat. And then there's the probiotic jar, which I think is really cool because it's the only one that I've seen on the market that's completely made of glass. And it seems like uh, every Part of your fermentation would only touch glass, which is kind of cool. You know, for me, each of those different methods, they have their own different place. But in terms of like having a perfect ease of mind for anything fermented, for me, like myself, I'd always choose something glass because it's so non-reactive. And, you know, the other methods, like the ceramic crock I was talking about, like, you know, what Mark Campbell's ceramic cells you know, they all have their own place. So say like a ceramic crock, it's more, I would say more for like something to look at like an ancient thing you would pull out of an archaeological dig. But yeah, in, in terms of safety and terms of ease of mind so far, I think I would probably rate probiotic jar as like the top way to um, ferment something in terms of anaerobic. Thanks. So, I mean, with all that anyway, to you, is there, you know, a big health benefit to producing something absolutely anaerobically, you know, versus um, like, you know, my old method, just the, the mason jar way where air gets in?
1: Well, I think so. When early on, you know, and over the years, I've had people share with me their ferments done that way. And I never reacted well to those. Now, I got to backtrack a little bit and tell you that I had a major health crisis 10 years ago. And it took a long, long time. I did everything I could find to improve my health. You know, it brought me on this Wellness Alaska journey. And I finally discovered just a couple, two and a half years ago, that I was living in a moldy house. And I was mold poisoned and that was what was ruining my health. And in spite of everything else I did, I was only able to reach a certain level of, of improvement. I was never able to really get clear to the top of, you know, get my health all the way back. And, you know, I suffered from debilitating chronic fatigue where I could hardly drag myself off the bed, to, you know, to do basic home, basic personal maintenance and that sort of thing a few years ago. And and it was just horrible and what so you know because of that then i discovered the that uh, even though fermenting was really important i wasn't able to eat it because of the mold levels in it and even without visible spoilage so i have developed a theory and my theory is this that when you have an anaerobic ferment with a small headspace at the top where the gases form they push the oxygen out through through a vent at the top like we have on the probiotic jar the oxygen is eliminated the mold suffocates and the lactic acid bacteria that, you know, starting out, they only represent about one and a half percent of the landscape of the microbes in that vessel. So you give them an ideal oxygen-free environment and they flourish. They They grow exponentially. It's estimated that they double their numbers every 20 to 30 minutes in the jar as long as there's carbohydrate to metabolize. And of course, they go a little faster and a little slower. You know, one family of bacteria slows down, then another one picks up as the pH in the jar drops and so on. But my theory about mason jar ferments is even if you can't see spoilage, somebody who's really sensitive can taste it. So my theory is that the lactic acid bacteria are not able to really kick up their their highest potential development and clean up the mold. My theory is that they completely eradicate the compounds and they disable the compounds and metabolize them. Turn them into some something else. They're gone. They can't be found by trace. And of course, we don't have lab testing to prove all of this yet, but this is just my theory. I think that in an anaerobic ferment, the molds are completely cleaned up. In a mason jar ferment, I don't think that they are completely cleaned up, even if you can't see spoilage. And that is one of the huge differences in taste between a really crisp, clean anaerobic ferment and the other kind. So if I can just continue here, There's basically three ways of controlling spoilage. One is to eliminate oxygen and spoilage microorganisms are aerobic. They need oxygen to reproduce. So that's eliminating oxygen is one way. Another way is to artificially lower the pH of the ferment. So that means you skip a healthy range of development of lactic acid bacteria and it changes the flavor, lowers the pH by adding whey. Did I say that already? Yeah, add whey. Lower the pH artificially with that way. That eliminates, you know, the, the higher pH range that a lot of spoilers microorganisms like. And then, um, you can add copious amounts of salt. One of the real advantages to the probiotic jar is we only need about a fifth, depending on the recipe, of course, but you can get by with 20% of the salt in an anaerobic ferment because you don't need it to control the mold. So, did I answer the question thoroughly? Oh, yeah. And that even kind of
0: expanded my mind a little bit. I think, you know, just from talking to you, I've even learned a little bit. Uh I did a previous podcast, like many podcasts ago, and I almost did kind of like an experiment or, you know, with my photography. I had a, a batch of pickled peppers and it started growing mold on top and I got out my macro lenses, you know, almost like microscopic. And uh, when I flipped it over, you know how normally you hear mold has roots and it goes down into the ferment. And I flipped it over. And uh even with like the macroscopic lenses, I, I couldn't necessarily see it. But I, I said in there, it would be nice to have, say, like a, a high school student do some kind of science fair project where they actually test the ferment for mold spores. Because I'm, I'm sure, like you're saying, uh there's some people such as yourself, you know, if you have some kind of allergic reaction to mold, it'd be interesting to know you know about the the method to use mm-hmm. I guess thinking about in terms of like natural like in the big ecosystems, you know like I've always said with um compost piles, you could throw you know hazardous things in there, and all the microbes will actually deactivate all the everything that's bad for the environment, just like you were saying the lactic acid bacteria they probably uh, if there's enough of them, they probably try to clean everything up. But yeah, if you don't get a, a really good anaerobic ferment to start with, then they can't really do their job.
1: I just suspect that they don't finish it completely. And, you know, one of the things I think that people don't understand about mold is it's not just the mold spore or the little filaments. or And that's it's not the physical part of the mold only. It's the compounds they create when they reproduce. I mean, that's one of the things that's so beneficial about a ferment is the compounds that are produced by the lactic acid bacteria, the acids they produce, and the other metabolites are just, you know, really beneficial for us.
0: Exactly. And the say whatever mold produces, I mean, you know, my lenses could only go so far, so I could see the mold spores, but I can't see the chemicals they produce. So mm-hmm. I guess that's where, you know, experimentation and lab testing would come in. Mm-hmm. When you mention adding whey, do you add whey to a lot of different ferments or do you just... Never. Okay.
1: Absolutely don't need it in a probiotic jar. If you're going to culture dairy, now dairy is very different from vegetable. Let me clarify and say that vegetables always, if they're organic and non-sprayed and or wild gathered, you know, naturally grown, they come with the lactic acid bacterial profile that they need in order to culture in the presence of liquid and salt water and salt. They always, unless they're irradiated. You don't want to try to ferment stuff that's irradiated because that kills everything. Dairy, on the other hand, you can clabber milk or, you know, raw milk, you know about clabbering, right? Yep. You just leave that on the counter and it naturally sours with whatever's there. Well, that, that would be clabbering. But if you want something specific like sour cream, well, that's a specific kind of lactic acid bacteria. So you add those to the milk to get that particular one, give it a head start to get it going. So dairy, you know, uh, you, you can use sour cream to to culture milk to make buttermilk and butter. And so, in, in other words, in dairy, you add cultures so that you get the outcome you want. But in a vegetable ferment, you just culture the bacteria that come on the vegetable. And that results in a natural fermentation process that produces spectacular results consistently.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the taste and everything is there. Mm-hmm. I guess in terms of adding like a starter, uh, just to experiment... Sometimes, like, I've tried to use, say, like a, a previous pickle or a previous uh, batch of something called backslopping. Mm-hmm where you started off from there but i know that the lactic acid bacteria they go through successions mm-hmm. say if you start with like the backslopping method where you're using a previous culture it doesn't necessarily turn out as good as what you could have had if you just started fresh from the beginning
1: well the backslopping is one is is another way you know instead of whey you could you can do that if you have a if you don't have a choice and you're going to aerobically ferment in a mason jar then if you do that that's one way of lowering the ph and adding bacteria that will contribute to a fermenting process. But no, you don't get the same thing. You could even do that in an anaerobic jar, but then you'd bypass and, and, and it ends up with something different. My goal with the probiotic jar is first and foremost, the healthy quality of the food. So we have designed a program and a way of going about it that, that doesn't just deliver delicious food. It's optimized fermenting. So you get all the lactic acid profile that can possibly happen in that jar by regulating temperature and light and, you know, the time that you do it, what you put in the jar, eliminating the oxygen, all of that. You get that optimal, you know, top of the line thing. My my, Going back to the health question, again, I wanted to say in our culture, especially in America, we are exposed to so much toxic garbage. Our carpets are toxic. Our paint is toxic. The new car is toxic you know, the food we eat that comes out of a box bag or can has different levels of toxicity. You know, we take a plastic drinking bottle and we've eliminated BPA. That's great. But now we're using BPS and the early stuff is showing that that's just worse. So I'm just saying, coming around to saying that I feel like the lactic acid bacteria that we introduce to our bodies through fermented food are so powerful for cleaning up the garbage and protecting our health and helping our bodies detoxify that I really want a fully optimized. For me, it's not just about being allergic to mold. It's wanting a fully optimized food that cleanses. And so I just feel like in our environment, in our culture for optimal health, we really can't afford to culture things that are vastly inferior in their medicinal quality. So, you know, I'm just, I'm coming from it from a different perspective.
0: I totally agree with that. It's like getting back into, you know, the natural life cycle, you know, actual natural processes, Mm -hmm. just agreeing with that rather than, you know, trying to go against nature. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you, so I would say that if you have grown up on a farm, on an organic farm, you know, where pesticides aren't used and you live in an old house and you don't bring home new stuff all the time. And you use glass for everything that you cook. You don't use any, any ceramics with, with cadmium and stuff like that in it, you know, and and you don't buy new clothes that come in with toxic stuff on the fabric to protect it from bugs and whatnot. And, you know, and you've basically lived a pristine life like you would in terms of chemicals, you know, in a third world country where they're just not exposed to that kind of stuff, then maybe that high level of medicinal quality ferment isn't necessary. But I just feel like we've got so many sick people. We've got chronic illness on the rise, we want to do the very best fermenting to try to stem that. That's my perspective. And I know that I'm not going to sell everybody on that idea. But I just in my experience, I've just seen what a huge difference it makes. And the people that ferment anaerobically just have such incredible results.
0: Yeah, it's great to have that option out there, though. You know, say for people that don't really have, you know, the superhumans that aren't allergic to anything, you know, maybe they can get by with something else. But for somebody that really needs the highest peak performance or, you know, optimum level of health, mm-hmm. at least there's something out there that will help them do that.
1: And I want to say, you know, the harsh crock, the the one with or any of them with the moat in the top, those are really good vessels. I don't want anybody to think I think I'm the only way to ferment. I think that's a really good way to anaerobically ferment. I'm a little bit hesitant about it because I think it has a really big headspace in it. So I think that you have a little bit more oxygen in there than, than might be perfect. But there's no way to do it perfectly because it's living food. And even we have to deal with some overflows in the airlock, you know, if you overfill the jar or stuff like that. There is no foolproof, perfect way to have it just easy and no challenges. But, you know, the harsh croc, those Polish crocs that have the moat, those are anaerobic and they do a fine job. But I don't like not being able to see what's happening. You know, you lock it up and you set it there and you just kind of cross your fingers and you can't tell. You know, and and all in a perfect world, it works out great. But I've had people email me and say, I just did a three month ferment on my sauerkraut and I opened the lid and it was just mold infested. You know, something went wrong, but I didn't even find out early enough to clean it out and start over sooner because I couldn't see what was going on in there. So,
0: oh, yeah, no, I agree. Every seems like every method has its own place. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the harsh crocs, it's so traditional. It's that's probably dated way back when. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just beautiful looking on the counter, too. Mm It's also, uh, like you said, it's a, an airlock, so it, it traps the, the oxygen. You know.
1: Yep. Let's, let's the, without pressure, lets the gases out without pressure.
0: But then again, you know, say if you're fermenting something like a very large batch, those things also get very, very heavy.
1: Mm-hmm. You have to pack it where you're going to leave it because you're not moving it after it's full.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> and if you move it, you know, you break the seal. You can't. You can't keep it level enough to not break the seal in that moat.
0: Yeah. So definitely
1: pack it where you're going to leave it. I guess
0: in terms of, say, if you want a beautiful family heirloom to pass down, that's definitely something very cool that you could pass down to your kids. Mm-hmm. But uh I guess, you know, another question I had uh for me, you know, I, I mostly have mason jars. And I just recently got, uh, I guess, a Kilner jar, which is similar to a phyto jar. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks like the probiotic jar lid works on it. And it, it seems like it seals just fine. I guess it's, you know, the same style. But I was actually curious about this. Um Say, you know, I like to ferment like four different jars at the same time and, uh, you know, in, in several big batches. If I got, um, say, four of those probiotic jars or even four of the lids and then put them on, say, if somebody already has a bunch of phyto jars, could I ferment something and then transfer it to a mason jar and then, you know, do another batch with those four jars? And, you know, is there any big health concern about, you know, fermenting something and then putting it into another jar to, to hold it?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that there's so much of a, of a health concern at all. As I would that you're going to lose some of your optimal level of probiotic value because as soon as you put it into something that has a constant exchange of oxygen and then you're using it and opening the jar and introducing some spoilage microbes every time you do that, you're going to have it, it's going to fail a lot faster. I mean, when I do my food in the probiotic jar and leave it in the refrigerator and use it, I get, depending on what it is, most ferments are good four to six months while they're being used. And if I move it to a mason jar, I wouldn't expect more than a few weeks out of it before mold could take over just because of the exposure and the oxygen exchange. And even though we're opening it while we're using it in the refrigerator, you know, the food doesn't stop fermenting when we move it to the fridge, when it's ready to eat. It continues very slowly. So the gases are continually being produced and pushing the oxygen back out of the jar again. And so if you leave it in the probiotic jar, then you don't have pressure building up. And you don't have, uh, oxygen feeding the ferment constantly like you would in a mason jar. I mean, you will have some every time you open it to take some out, but you know, within a few hours, depending on what the food is and how long it's been there, you know, it, it'll push the oxygen back out of the jar. So true, but, you know, and Lisa, I want to say Lisa had wrote an extremely good post on her countercultures. Um, blog recently about how to store your ferments and why it's important to keep them anaerobically with an airlock, and I was really grateful for that because that meant i didn't have to write that. I can just link to that from our site
0: yeah, I think I actually linked to that on the interview I did with her. I guess speaking of her, she even mentioned that you can make um sourdough starter in the probiotic jar
1: well, we don't actually make it in the jar, but how how we I teach people to do sourdough when I have time to teach people how to do sourdough I kind of moved away from teaching those peripheral classes but you can make a, a grain based sourdough and have it and put it in the jar to store it in the refrigerator in between feedings. So how I do that is I take it out of the, out of the jar and I feed it on the countertop. Um, you know, mix in the flour and the water to get it going again, transfer it back to the probiotic jar with lots of headspace, leave it on the counter so it'll do its thing, get its bubbling action going and all of that. And then after it's really, really active, I put it back in the refrigerator to store it and. I have neglected my sourdough as long as six weeks in the refrigerator and not have it develop oxidation on top of it.
0: Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. I
1: I was impressed. I really did not expect it to work that well. You know, most of the gases that are created in a dough ferment are going to stay inside the dough. They're not going to rise and escape. And uh, so there's still oxygen trapped in that jar at some level, but it doesn't come back in. Once the, the spoilage microbes use it up, it's gone. And Lisa was talking about how, you don't want to use too small of a jar because it'll come out uh, the airlock. I have a picture of that. I did that. It does make it terrible. It's <laughs> a gooey mess. And then I wrecked a brush trying to clean the airlock. I should have just thrown the airlock away. But uh <laughs> it, <laughs> it can really be. Yeah, it's just, it, there's so much to learn. I'm just on a passion to learn as much as I can about health and and fermenting. And my my knowledge continues to expand. As my experience expands and as I find, you know, new sources of information and the sourdough is just an awesome uh, way to store it. So, you know, you don't have to feed it as often if you store it in the probiotic jar because it, it doesn't oxidize and it doesn't it doesn't die off. I mean, I, I, I tell people in my class, you know, feeding it once a week is optimal. Feeding it every two weeks is adequate. And you can revive it if you wait a month, but I don't recommend that.
0: Yeah, I have to keep that in mind. I just recently got into sourdough starter and, you know, I, I had my first one and took a, half of it away, fed it uh, after rehydrating, you know, a culture I had got. And boy, it, it, it really does expand. Like I, mine actually more than doubled and nearly came out the top. And I had, you know, a half gallon size mason jar, which is yeah, it pretty impressive.
1: It'll close to triple.
0: Yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun and fun. Boy, talk about the flavor when you make a sourdough bread or sourdough biscuits. Oh, something else. Isn't it delicious? Uh, yeah, pretty amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's acquired taste, though. I want to tell people that try real sourdough. You know, all of these things are acquired tastes. And you have to give it more than one sampling before you decide you can't stand it. Because, you know, when I first started eating fermented food, honestly, I did it because it was a health thing for me. Not because I thought it tasted good. It was not very good in the beginning for me. But I have acquired a taste and now I crave those fermented foods. My body has adapted to say, I gotta have that. Give me some now. So,
0: well, I can say, you know, I used to buy sourdough bread at the store because, you know, um, I got into the no need type of bread making, you know, and you add a little bit of yeast, but I'd never made the sourdough. Mm -hmm. But ever since making no need sourdough bread, the flavor and it rises even better than what I had with the yeast. Uh, I would never buy a sourdough bread again after, you know, it, it's so easy to make, at least for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty amazing.
1: And then you have to compare when you buy a sourdough bread, is it real sourdough or is it just yeasted bread flavored with vinegar?
0: Yeah, true. And you know, and the ingredients, they have all these things you can't pronounce. And then, they have culture starter in there, but you know, what is that? Yeah. Of course, with big companies, I I can never trust really anything in there. So Mm -hmm. the more you can actually make things for yourself, you know exactly what went into it. You know, you have control over all of the ingredients, Mm -hmm. Uh, eating less processed things. That's probably, you know, more of a benefit to your health than just about anything. Oh, yeah.
1: Real food, real whole food.
0: Oh, that was another question I had. I was kind of curious because, you know, usually when I bring people on, uh, e- of course, everybody is fermenting, but I'm always curious, like, you know, I'm vegan. A lot of probably most of the audience is paleo or, you know, probably going toward that direction. What is, um, you know, your food philosophy? Like how how, what's the way you, you eat?
1: Well, I really follow the Weston Price Foundation's guidelines for food from the nourishing traditions. I just really believe in real food and I believe in real food properly prepared So, you know, like the soaking and the sprouting of grains and nuts to eliminate the phytic acids that if you don't do that, then it leaches minerals and other nutrients from your body. So it's actually a potential detriment to nutrition instead of a support. So, you know, there's just so much along those lines to know. And, um, but I also recognize that, that people have limitations to with diet for what they can eat, like people that have celiac or are otherwise gluten sensitive, you know, they can't eat that kind of stuff. And, You know, their health has been affected to the degree that, that they have to have a different diet. And for some time, I had to have a different diet as well. Um, I went heavy on, on bone broth to try to, to help what was, what I was dealing with before I even knew that it was mold that was making me sick. sick. I knew that I had, had intestinal vet problems, digestion problems. So I'm really just a whole food, a whole food thing, you know, less refined sugar, no refined salt. We use whole salt in everything we do at my house. I travel with whole salt. I just can't be made to use the white shaker salt.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a big difference between table salt and actual sea salt. Oh, yeah. Including all the different varieties of sea salt, like the Himalayan salt and Celtic sea salt. Yeah. Yeah, the flavor is a little different on that one.
1: Mm -hmm. I like it because it hasn't been exposed to industrial age pollution. So it's really, really clean. It's not polluted. So that's my theory on that. But I, there are lots of sea salts that have great flavor and are really good for you. Broad mineral profiles, you know, all the trace minerals we need so badly. We just don't get a lot of that in our, in our SAD, our standard American diet, our SAD diet.
0: Oh, exactly. Which is probably with all these different movements going um, the slow food movement, you know, paleo. Even vegan places like McDonald's, when you see in the headlines that their shares are dropping and they just forced their CEO to, to retire, you know, that's good news for us. It, at least it looks like the country's trying to move a little bit healthier yeah. in terms of food like this. Yeah. I guess one more question I had on the probiotic jar, you know, just to go back a little bit. So they come in half liter, one liter. And right on up to five liters
1: yep there's a there's a there are eight different sizes, and they do range and the price we we uh, you know when we first started out, we had the bigger ones a little more expensive and the smaller ones a little less expensive, but the real cost is in is in getting that hole through the lid and putting a high quality u s made food grade grommet in it and so we adjusted the pricing a little bit, brought the smallest jars up a little, brought the biggest jars down a little, and really tried to narrow the gap so that we want to encourage people you know buy the size you need. Don't buy the small one because it's cheaper. Um, unless of course you have a great source, you know, we encourage people to go and see if their local health food store or some other mart shopping center has the Fido jar and purchase just the lid kit. It saves a huge amount of money in shipping. And, you know, and that, and the other thing you can do is purchase a bunch of different Fido jar sizes and have a fewer number of lids. So, you know, one of the things that, that I encountered early on was, Trying to stuff all the vegetables into a three-quarter liter jar, and I had just a little too much. So then I move it over to a one-liter jar. Well, if you only have two jars, it's kind of hard to do that. So we encourage people to have a broad range of sizes. So when you think you've got a half a liter of vegetables, and you actually have more than that, or the other way, maybe you get it all packed in there, and and there's too much headspace. You've got to move it to a smaller jar. So yeah, we we do carry the full range of the Bormioli sizes, and probably the most popular jar. Is the three liter jar. The two liter jar is pretty popular. Uh, that three liter jar is, man, people just love that. It's perfect for making kvass. It's big enough to make sauerkraut, a good healthy batch of sauerkraut. You know, it's just, just about three quarters of a gallon is that size there. So, and it, and it's square. It doesn't take up as much room in the refrigerator as a round you know, the four liter and the five liter are both round jars and they just seem to take up a lot of room. Okay. Yeah.
0: I was actually curious about that. I probably find myself fermenting, at least, you know, when I first started most often in say a one liter size. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as I started really enjoying this, I, I probably moved up to more the two liter. Mm-hmm. If you have a, a large amount of cucumbers mm-hmm. and making a whole gallon size, it, it'd probably be better just to start off with a, a maybe a mid range for somebody just getting into it. I guess maybe the smaller ones have their benefit and you can make test batches. But yeah, if you have something that you really like, then it's kind of a shame when it gets done and like, oh, that's all I have now.
1: <laughs> yeah. But this last year, I, well, we skipped this summer. I was too busy and I could not get my hands on 50 pounds of cucumbers. But the year before, we did nine five-liter jars of cucumbers and another three-liter jar with hot spice in it. I I haven't even opened it yet. It's been a year and a half since we packed it. We're still eating those. They maintain indefinitely in cold store, You know, in cool storage, we just have an outdoor building that doesn't freeze. That we keep our ferments in through the winter, and I do all my harvesting stuff from our garden. We have an organic garden. We, we I live on a small farm, so we've got goats and chickens, and we sell our produce locally. And my husband is a beekeeper, and so we have AlaskaWildHoney dot com up finally this year.
0: So that's actually in Alaska. That's actually
1: in Alaska, and uh so we do because we have you know long winter, long dark winter. We do most of our fermenting in season and store it. I have the benefit, you know, like if you live in Southern California, you're not going to be able to do year round storage like that without a refrigerator or something. But where I live, it doesn't get that hot. So, you know, you got to keep your ferments under about 55 degrees if you don't want them to get mushy. But oh yeah, you know, beet kvass is going to be liquid anyway. It doesn't matter if it warms up. There's nothing, nothing like aged anaerobically fermented kvass from beets. That is absolutely delicious. It's so good. But again, acquired taste, you know?
0: (laughs) Exactly. I was kind of curious because I I haven't really had anybody on yet that's like, you know, started up a fermentation business. Uh, What was it like to, you know, starting any kind of business has got to be kind of stressful, but what was it like starting it up and having it kind of like a family affair?
1: Well, it was really interesting. You know, we started in my living room because I've always worked at home. Whatever I've done has always been a home-based business because I really like being at home. I, I raised my kids at home. Obviously, everybody raises their kids at home, but I wanted to be with them. I didn't want to farm them out and go to work someplace. And uh, so, you know, to just make a little room. So we started with making a little room in the corner of the living room and that, that space expanded. It had to expand until now we've moved the dining room into a into another spot in the house and we sold our living room furniture to make room for everything. And, uh, and we don't use, really use the living room anyway, so it, it wasn't a big deal. But People just laugh at us because who does that? But, you know, it was really, really important to me to keep the costs of overhead at zero. We didn't start with a great big huge capital fund to do this. We did this out of pocket. So it was going to be really important to keep it cheap. And we wanted to keep it cheap for people to buy it. We didn't want to have, you know, the the downside of the Polish Crocs is they're just terribly expensive. They're terribly heavy. They're expensive to ship. We wanted this to be affordable. We wanted this to be something that... You know, everybody could have one for for way less money than the price of a blender. That you know, everybody's got a blender, or almost everybody, probably. You know, some kind of kitchen appliance. We wanted it to be affordable, and we wanted to put it in the hands of of everybody. So to try to make everything inexpensive and to do things very carefully, and and to not come on podcasts like this when we couldn't do production fast enough to handle any kind of response we would see. We've been re- just so it's been a kind of a You know, it really was a work of love because I got my health back through the support of a really good naturopath that's supportive and people that were able to offer me tools that made all the difference. And this is a tool that makes all the difference. And it was just so important to us. And, you know, and it does get hard. It does get the days are long and no vacations, really. There's just no time to do that kind of thing because there's always something else that needs to be done to create support you know, the website needs work and, and, you know, all that kind of, it's just the things that are typical to any business. Um, it's certainly no different than any other business I've ever been in, except this one is really special because I know that we're changing people's lives. And the emails that I get from people who've really struggled with environmental illness and people who've struggled with all kinds of digestive and autoimmune problems, send me emails and tell me, I'm so glad I found your jar. This is the thing that's making the difference for me. And I never get email that says, I regret spending $100 on three jars because it didn't make any difference. I have not ever received one of those. And I'm sure there will be the first time. But that's where it's at for me. I know that I'm doing something really important. And it's really important to me to make sure that we equip people properly for the very best possible outcome.
0: That's pretty exciting. I always enjoy, you know, when I get emails, I have a few listeners that email me constantly, you know, they're saying like, Oh, thank you so much for the podcast. And just Trying to put this information out there, and for you, it must be even more because you're actually providing them the tools to do it. And especially at a time right now when I'm sure you've seen in the headlines that fermentation is kind of trending upwards. You know, some of the foods are becoming a little more trendy, like um, different kimchi and uh, kombucha uh-huh. and things. When you go to a, a city like maybe a, about a year ago, I went to Austin, Texas, and kombucha was just uh-huh. everywhere. You know, everywhere you you went, you could just Uh, buy a Uh, bottle of it
1: every health food health food store i've ever been in it's everywhere
0: it's been around for so many years but it it just seems like maybe just recently you know uh even the public's right Uh next to my house it just started stocking kombucha which you know a couple years ago i I would have never even known what that was so yeah pretty exciting and yeah starting a business you always have to keep on putting yourself out there like if i just stopped the podcast and That's basically the end of it. Probably everybody would forget me and, you know, just have to keep on getting out there and spreading the good word. You can't do
1: that. You know, you've got (laughs) it. You've got to stay with it. It's a good thing. You know, um, I think the more that we educate people, I just envision giving people this information before they get sick. You never know how many lives you touch if you can get somebody to ferment, even, you know, if they're healthy, even if, you know, they're doing a mason jar ferment that I don't think is, is adequate personally. That's just my belief system, but, I know that it's better than not doing it at all. I know that it is.
0: Exactly. Like I said, you know, every method has its own way. Like with the mason jar method, if I didn't start with that, then I probably wouldn't have started at all. And, you know, you always look for something a little bit better, like a better way to do it. Because it's kind of unsightly, you know, you have it on the counter and, you know, you have jars sticking out. And then then when you get a better way, it actually looks beautiful on the counter now. So that's been kind of nice.
1: I'm I'm looking forward to you sending me pictures of what you do. Um probably. <laughs> oh,
0: actually, um in the future, I, I've been taking pictures as it's going along. So I'll be making a post on, you know, what my experience was anyway. And I even have kind of an experiment going. When I look over on the counter right now, I have because I bought a whole lot of jalapenos in one jar, you know, I have the probiotic jar. And you know, it's looking beautiful with the airlock. And it, it's nice that nothing is exposed at all, even the even the water is not exposed, just little pinholes in the top. Uh, next to that is just the regular how I'd always do it, just the, the mason jar method with a salt brine. The next one I actually did backslopping just cause I figured I'd throw that in there. And the one after that actually just has water because, um, yeah, I've read, you know, Sandra Katz, he said it's possible you can use just water. Yeah, I'm sure it won't taste as good as what you would use with salt. But anyways, I just put a whole spectrum up there just to, to experiment. Everybody should be experimenting and seeing what they like. And uh, it'll be kind of interesting to see how it turns out. But I think I'll definitely be switching to anaerobic fermentation uh, vessels just because it's a lot easier to work with I have just maybe that little bit more of a mm-hmm. peace of mind. So yeah, you should see pictures coming Excellent. soon.
1: <laughs> I wanted to throw in something about this, the aerobic quality of a ferment because it's under brine. That is something that's thrown around a lot out there, but I have a theory about that. And it is that if water was anaerobic in nature, then fish would suffocate. Yeah, true. I actually hadn't thought of it that Oxygen is constantly dissolved into water. And, you know, that's why you have a bubbler in your fish tank. The exposure of the oxygen in those bubbles dissolves the oxygen into the water for the fish. So... That, you know, that's one of the advantages we have. I mean, it's obviously effect uh, related to surface area exposure based on volume and all of that. But when we put that brine bowl, it's just an awesome little tool. Put that brine bowl in the phyto jar under your airlock in the probiotic jar that it is just a narrow sliver of space around the edge. It's not. It's not really even enough space for a grated vegetable to stick out of there.
0: That's a beautiful little bowl. It works pretty well. I filled it exactly to where you know you said to, mm-hmm. to fill it to. Put the brine bowl in, close the top, and I saw that just little tiny sliver around we'll the just outside. Put the gas out. Just enough. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah very nice. <laughs> Can I talk a little bit about beet kvass and the brine bowl? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. One of my earliest. Discoveries when I made beet kvass, and of course you put the brine, you flo- float the brine bowl on the top of a liquid like that to to keep because it it floats, but just barely. And uh, be- kvass is a very foamy. Beets are very foamy, so as they're creating their copious amounts of gas, this foam is coming up into the into the airspace in the jar, into the headspace, and I noticed that it just makes that way that that brine bowl fits in there. It creates the foam. It shapes it into this. Like a wall that just comes up and then it and it kind of folds and caves into the bowl and one of the things if you've made beat Kavash, you know that the that the foam at the top of the jar wants to oxidize heavily and turn really brown and kind of leave a smucky weirdness on the glass. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, I've made beef kvass a couple times. I still have some left.
1: Yeah, so what is so slick about the brine bowl in that jar with kvass is when it's done and you open the lid and you get in there gingerly with two fingers to to pull it straight up, all of that oxidized foam has caved into that bowl And then you remove it and that of course, because it displaces the liquid, the liquid level drops when you take the brine bowl out. And then you can get a a really clean cloth in there, damp cloth and wipe all that, all that foam off the edge of the jar. And then none of it's in the kvass and it makes it taste so clean. Cause that I've I've read posts about kvass tasting like dirty feet. I think that oxidized foam is why. And you, and you are able to use the brine bowl and completely remove that from the ferment. And it just is awesome. Now, every now and then, if you're not real careful when you move it, it'll sink to the bottom. And then, of course, you've got your foam in your ferment, and that doesn't ruin it. It's just really cool that it's possible to do it and get that out. So
0: I'm glad you mentioned that. I'll have to keep that in mind when I you know, empty the bowl out. Yeah,
1: and and I think kvass is about the only thing that foams that much. Cucumbers foam some, but not nearly as much as kvass does.
0: Very cool. Yeah,
1: I just was delighted when that I discovered. It was just an accident. Like, oh, wow, that is so cool. So anyway,
0: (laughs) (laughs) what are some common questions, you know, people have when, say, uh, they just get their uh, probiotic jar, maybe like me, just start using it. Do you have people email you, you know, wondering uh, how to do different things?
1: I I do get, I do get some questions.
0: Or maybe some problems or just concerns. I,
1: I guess my most common question anymore is people pack their jars with cabbage with, which is a very prolific gas producer and they want to know what to do about the overflow because we tell them not to open the jar for three days. No matter what, don't open the jar. Just don't do it. Doesn't matter what happened. Just don't open the jar because you totally defeat the purpose of an anaerobic environment if you're opening the jar. And in that first three days, the lactic acid bacteria are really getting a foothold. They're knocking back the mold. They're killing it off. They're winning the fight. And you don't want to give the the bad guys a rush of oxygen. So the most common question I get is, "I I got an overflow. What do I do?" And we put videos up specifically for that. But some people don't find the video section. We've got a little tab on the left side of the store in the website that says Customer Service, and then there's a series of links there, everything to our sh- from our shipping policy to the Customer Service tab has some other stuff in it. But then there's a Pickling tab below that that has the free videos, a link to the to Lisa's cookbook on our website. Awesome cookbook.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the links right now. I, I see on um, probioticjar.com how-to videos, and you scroll over it, and you can click on free videos, and it brings them all up in a row. Yes,
1: and it depends on which site. We We kind of started with one site, and then we had to do something about a functional store and a shopping cart. So Thus was born store.probioticjar.com. And at some point, we'll be able to migrate mostly away from the probioticjar.com site you're actually looking at. So depending on where you're at, you find that those links to the free videos. So yeah, and and so there's a series of videos there. And I've got a couple more to, to finish producing. One that talks about salt, why we choose the salt, we choose what's special about it. And the other one is about the airlocks. We have two airlocks to choose from. And uh, people want to know, well, what's the difference between the two-piece airlock and the three-piece airlock, and how do I choose? So we have a video about that. I just don't have it up on the site yet. So you know, the two the two-piece airlock is really good for in the refrigerator while you're using it. But the three-piece airlock is spectacular for the initial phase of the ferment because with that bubbler, it gives you a, a sense of what's going on with the ferment because it moves, it rises with gas production.
0: So the three-piece airlock is the bigger it's, one that I yes. received. Yes,
1: and, and okay. you know, it, the other advantage to that airlock is you can add water to it without breaking the seal and you cannot with the two-piece airlock because the bubbler is connected to the lid. So I would have to say that uh, what do I do about an overflow? You know, first of all, always put your ferment, no matter what kind of vessel you're using, put it on a cookie sheet. You do not need that running all over the kitchen. It can happen in any kind of vessel. So always use a cookie sheet. And now I know that there are some things that will not overflow. And then I've been surprised when I was sure they would not overflow and they did anyway because of something I did different or something different about the vegetable or who knows what. It was super active, had a little overflow issue. And, you know, so we have a video that teaches people how to jank that airlock out of the hole, put your finger over the hole to reduce the amount of oxygen rushing in there. And believe me, it's amazing how much, you know, oxygen molecules are really, really small. They really are opportunistic. They, they are always racing to equalize their distribution in any space. So when you, that's why, you know, even under pressure, there is some oxygen exchange in a screw top jar. So that's, you know, why we don't do that. But to, to be able to get that airlock out of there and swap it with a clean, ready to go three piece airlock to get, you know, and then while you have your finger over the hole, shake the jar a little bit to try to get the gasses to rise you know while you have the hole plugged to lower the brine level when the gasses rise the brine goes down and you know so we've got a couple of videos that explain how to do that and then we show you how to another video that shows you how to push the the cabbage back down under the brine once you're past that 3 day window you know so so we get we get questions like that
0: all right it doesn't seem like there's really that much that can go wrong with it you know especially if you are already fermenting uh anyways you probably I've already experienced a few things here and there. Mm-hmm. This just makes it just a tiny bit
1: easier. Well, and what we did right from the beginning was ask questions would come in. If we got the same question twice, that's representative of people who don't know what to do about something. So we created resource information and posted on the website, either in a, a how-to page or made a video about it to reduce the amount of you know people being confused and then having to wait for an answer from us. We want to make it available all the time. And probably one of my favorite sections of the website is the expanded guide to fermentation because you know it's uh, several pages that link one to another in a in succession that explain how it works why the probiotic jar is special because uh, and it, how you know the anaerobic environment being very special and then working clear through the end of of what to do and what your food's going to taste like how to identify spoilage and that kind of thing you know one of the things that You know, people get real nervous about fermenting. They're afraid of fermenting, like you said in the beginning of the podcast. And I want to tell you that in an anaerobic environment, if your food is raw, that's a key thing. If the food is raw in an anaerobic environment, you can't have spoilage that you can't see that can hurt you because it's not microbially possible to have that happen. So, you know, we don't have a recipe for ketchup because ketchup recipes use canned tomatoes most of the time, and that's not raw food. So you don't do that. Please don't have anybody ever make ketchup in our jar. It's a recipe for botulism because the food has already been cooked. So that's really important. But if it's raw and it's anaerobic, you cannot have spoilage that's a problem. Spoilage happens in a very interesting succession. It's taken me a few years to learn this, but the first thing that happens is you can just taste something that's a little bit off. Now I can taste it long before I have a problem with spoilage that I can react to. So I know it's very, very low levels. And I, and it, and the taste is really the most significant factor. And then the next thing is you would be able to smell it. And then the, you know, it won't smell quite right. And then the next level after that is you can start to see it. And depending, I, mean, I suppose that there are some things that could potentially happen that by the time you can see spoilage that maybe that's That's a bad enough thing that you would want to be super careful, but I have experimented a little bit, and I have eaten a ferment where I could see the beginning signs of spoilage and have not reacted, which I think is remarkable. And then, of course, it goes from being able to see a sign to, okay, now it's fuzzy and it's done. You know, it's toast. So I will tell you that if you can't taste it or see a problem, that it's going to be safe to eat.
0: I think the thing that gives me the most peace of mind is probably, you know, the fact that say if you ferment something properly, statistically, it's actually safer than raw vegetables. It is.
1: It actually is because in the process of fermenting, you've enhanced the the numbers of lactic acid, healthy bacteria that reside in our gut that we want to support. And you've eliminated the pathogenic microbes because the lactic acid bacteria kill them off.
0: I think that normally surprises a lot of people like, wow. But then, you know, when you see in the headlines, you can't have spinach right now or can't have tomatoes or peanut butter or, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, just happening all the time. Whereas if we were fermenting a lot of these raw vegetables, you know, they would actually be safer and probably even healthier, unlocking more of the the, the minerals and vitamins and, you know, all that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you completely change the nutritional profile of a vegetable when you ferment it. It releases, it releases all kinds of awesome stuff.
0: And of course, you know, you're not going to be just eating fermented vegetables. You know, they have their place too, just like with everything. Oh
1: yeah. It's not the only thing you want to eat. Not at all. Small amounts, but constant. You know, have something fermented at every meal. That's the goal for my family.
0: I guess in terms of, you know, fermenting things, what would be some of your favorite things to ferment? Like, you know, favorite different recipes that you would tell somebody to start with or uh, say even for like uh, somebody that's a little more intermediate, some favorite things that you like to do all the time?
1: Well, I've already talked extensively about kvash. That just delights me. Um <laughs> I'd say, you know, another thing for a beginner, carrot sticks are wonderful. They're easy to do. It's really easy to see what's happening in the jar when you ferment a carrot. The flavor is good and it's ready to eat in a week. So that's a a top favorite. Another favorite to start out with is just the sauerkraut, but to get a full ferment all the way to the end with all four phases complete, it's a three-month process. So people don't usually like to start out with cabbage because they have to wait too long. When you just ferment cabbage for five to seven days just for the beginning part of a flavor, it's not very fermented at all. And in fact, that level of fermentation can release compounds in cabbage because it's difficult to digest that make it very gassy for some people. So, you know, I would tell somebody if anybody's ever fermented cabbage for you and you ate some and you just had a terrible time with it, you know, you have to do it long enough to get past all of that. And then all of that bad stuff goes away and you just benefit from the enhanced nutrition and the enhanced probiotic levels. But, but still it's a healing food. Fermented cabbage is one of the most healing foods there is to choose from. So, you know, that has to rank up there with a favorite, but my true favorite ferments aren't beginner ferments. I am just in love with fermented mayonnaise using fermented lemons at the end of the mayonnaise ferment, you know, stirring those in and then putting it back in the fridge and using it, um, being able to get three or four weeks out of a healthy batch of mayonnaise instead of three or four days, like homemade mayonnaise without the stabilizers from the grocery store. You know, Do you ever made mayonnaise?
0: No, I never actually made it before. I see you have a recipe on your website. Though. I do.
1: It, it is just, you know, it is just delicious. I'm one of those people that has a real tough time getting mayonnaise to actually emulsify. Some people just think it's easy to make and I don't know, they just have the knack. I was not born with mayonnaise knack. And now that I've figured out how to make it, most of the time, I think on the website it says I never have a failure with my method. I actually finally just had one. And then I had to I had to rescue it with another couple of egg yolks and a whisk. But I didn't throw it out. But I'm I'm not a gifted mayonnaise person and uh and that mayonnaise mayonnaise is just the it is so much better than store-bought mayonnaise. And I just didn't, you know, I love mayonnaise and I just thought, man, how am I, if I can't figure out how to make good mayonnaise, how am I ever going to, you know, get rid of this? Because even healthy mayonnaise, you can buy organic mayonnaise at the store, but it's made with junk oil. You know, they use organic soybean oil, but that's not a great oil for you. You know, so I don't want to get into that too far. My other favorite is our recipe for raw fermented granola. That is the only cereal in my house besides cooked oat groats um, or cooked quinoa, those kinds of things. But as far as breakfast cereal or or snack on the road, we make that granola recipe. And and when I have time and we like to keep that around, I've got a teenager that just wipes it out quick, but it is delicious. And at the end of the ferment in the jar, you can add some whole sugar. Like we use rapidura, which is a a less refined version of sucanate you might be familiar with to sweeten it a little bit. And it is just awesome stuff. I pass it out at my at my classes, when I teach, I give everybody a nugget of that. and They're just like, oh, that's the best granola ever. Like, yeah, and it's just, you know, way better than the stuff you buy. You just can't buy. You just cannot buy food like you can make at home. So I think I hit all my favorites. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, You also mentioned um, you do workshops and, you know, classes. What do you go over in some of those?
1: Well, uh, we are in the process of developing a pilot all day, and it may have to end up being two days workshop to introduce people to fermenting, to anaerobic fermenting, contrast it against uh, aerobic ferments like you and I have today, some, and go into teaching them everything we do so that they leave able to make the granola and understanding how it works and what's important about it. I want people to come to a fermenting workshop and spend a day and go home understanding how to make recipes of their own because it's really not that complex. But what you have to do is get them a really firm foundation of understanding, you know, the basic microbiology of it so that they understand how different things are going to impact what they try to put together and leave them able to leave. You know, for for example, um, one of the early suggestions in trying to figure out how to ferment anaerobically was to put olive oil on top of the ferment because that clearly would seal out the oxygen. Well, sometime after that, it became evident that that's a botulism problem. And so you don't do that. Don't put oil on top of a ferment. It's dangerous because it develops right in the oil. So then to learn that you can, you know, the reason that oil in the mayonnaise is okay is because it's emulsified into a food matrix with the egg yolk. So, you know, to kind of give a contrast about all of the things there are to know. So it really is, you know, eight or nine hours. I'm not sure if we're going to end up breaking it into two five-hour days Or or how we're going to do that. But that is is scheduled in Alaska for April. uh, April 18th, we're going to do that. So I've been working on developing that.
0: Yeah. So anybody up in Alaska, you know, you have to check that out. Yep, yep. You know, speaking of Alaska being cold, um, I asked uh, a couple of the last guests, you know, do, do you have any problems fermenting in the wintertime? You know, do you have any tips for that?
1: Well, my tips for that are, you know, it's ideal to ferment the food that you want to ferment when it's in season. All of the challenges of fermenting come from fermenting foods that have been stored for a long time. So that's one of the reasons that we do our fermenting in the summertime. Now, this year, our beets were harvested in September, and I didn't get them into jars until January. And we had packed them in the barn in galvanized steel trash cans and wet sand to preserve them. And they were in spectacular condition when when I finally got to it in January right before this trip. So I would say, you know, number one would be to do that. A number, another thing is, you know, move a jar, move a thermostat, a thermometer, move a thermometer around your house and find a perfect spot for, you know, that has the, the kind of temperature you need. And another solution is to use a seedling mat. I've been trying to find a wholesaling garden supply to, to, you know, to sell us seedling mats so we can put them on the website, but I haven't been able to, to get that to happen yet. But a seedling mat will raise the temperature just a little bit. Some people use a ice chest and a hot water bottle and just change it out every few hours during the day and then let the temperature drop while they sleep and then get up and, you know, get the temperature back up in the morning. So there are a variety of ways you can manage your temperature. Um, I have a customer in South Carolina that has actually purchased a wine refrigerator. She is committed. You know, her naturopath told her, to start fermenting to get jars from us and, and to get going because her health depended on it. So she went all out. So a couple of people have done that and you know, that's a pretty expensive way to go about it, but it works. So
0: yeah, whatever works.
1: <laughs> so for us, mostly, mostly just doing it in season. Like, you know, I have people in Hawaii that want to do cabbage. And I'm like, well, you have to find a way to cool it down because cabbage won't ferment. Well, it said cabbage is going to be tough. Cabbage doesn't grow real well in Hawaii either. I wouldn't think. So you know, the things that are local, Ferment the things that are local, ferment them in season, and uh, then you truly eliminate your spoilage issues. Because if you try to ferment something that's been in storage, like, you know, we can go to the grocery store and buy a big bag of organic carrots any time of the year. But if those carrots have been in in storage for six months, it's not going to be the same as it would have been if you had gotten local carrots when they are harvested. It's just a different end result.
0: And the taste is different. Just yeah. pluck in a carrot out of the ground and you can just put it up to your nose and it smells like no, no other carrot you'd ever buy at the store. It's true. It's true. So uh, on your radar, do you have anything maybe in the future that you're going to try to get into that you haven't quite got there yet? Or you know, are you going to ex- be experimenting with anything in the
1: future? I'd like to expand my fermenting expertise. We get uh, fresh River salmon there in Alaska, fresh river salmon. There are ways of curing that, and I want to kind of experiment, but honestly, I don't know enough about how to do that. You know, make Gravlax, and I'm not quite sure what else there even is along the along the flesh foods idea. We're never gonna support that on the probiotic jar just for safety reasons. you know that's that's a do it at your own risk kind of thing. I don't know enough about it to even talk intelligently about it, but i'm I'm interested in doing that. I'm interested in making cheese. But I, but that's not, you know, that's kind of outside the probiotic jar realm. I, I just, as time allows, I'm hoping that, you know, the foundational support parts of the probiotic jar kind of, kind of can leave me more time for those kinds of things in the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, it seems like the most common, uh, answer I get for that one, at least with, um, the past handful of guests, it seems like everybody wants to learn how to make, you know, fish sauce and fermented fish. Mm-hmm pretty I understand interesting. It
1: smells pretty bad. Yeah. One of the questions I get is, you know, my husband's really sensitive to, I'll get him an email that says, my husband's really sensitive to, to smells. And if I do garlic, is it going to wreck my fridge? And I'm like, and I'm like, you know, I don't think so, but other people have complained. So, you know, it lets the gas out of the airlock. So, you know, one way you can mitigate something like that with the smell would be to go ahead and put your probiotic jar together like normal and then get a really good bag, you know, a big enough bag and, and tape it on the top of the jar. So it traps the gases and then take it out in the garage, take the bag off, you know, flap the bag around get all the gases out of it. Then seal seal it back up and take it back in the house. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't felt the need to do that. I don't care if my garlic smells like garlic, but some people are real sensitive about stuff like that. So I'd like to hear from somebody at some point that tries that let, lets me know if it works, but my sister's getting into fermenting because of me and my influence. And, and she said recently, she says, I think the garlic has wrecked my fridge. And I'm like, Oh wow, I wouldn't have even thought about that, but
0: yeah, that, that was pretty smelly when I, I first tried to ferment garlic. I was actually surprised at how much it did smell. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's less in the probiotic jar, but I think it still has it it still has a smell. It still gives off, you know, cabbage too. Somebody asked me recently on our Facebook page, we posted, I posted a, a first time I've ever done Brussels sprouts. Because more because I was curious about whether or not the grocery store was selling an organic vegetable not an organic but a non irradiated food So I know that if I put anything in a probiotic jar and add salt and water and lock it up I will know very quickly if it's irradiated or not because if it's irradiated the bubbler will not move gases will not form and the color will not change It will stay exactly the same until it finally spoils which takes a long time in the probiotic jar And so I kind of did that as an experiment and I put that on the website and somebody asked me well, does it stink? Cause I did Brussels sprouts. I thought they smelled terrible and, but they hadn't used a probiotic jar. And so I said, well, I said, I don't smell it. And I asked my sister, you know, sitting in her kitchen, does it, do you smell it? She said, I don't smell it, but I went up and sniffed the jar and you can definitely smell it. So. <laughs> how, what's your, how sensitive is your nose? How much can you take?
0: (laughs) Yeah, true. Oh, back on, if you, you know, you want to learn maybe a little bit more about the fermenting fish. I had told Lisa this because that that was what she wanted to get into also. If you go back uh, so many episodes ago, I had a girl on, you might've heard of her, might not, named Ariana Mullins. She runs a blog called, And Here We Are. Uh, She talked extensively about growing up in the Philippines and making fermented fish and how they would- take, um, I guess, plantains or bananas, and they would take it to the beach as a a dip and eat it. Wow. That's pretty interesting. interesting. Yeah. It's great having all these cultures all over the world, you know, doing all these different things, and then we can all learn exactly from each one. Oh,
1: yeah. You know, it's really, I have to say, it's really interesting to raise a family in a growing, enlightened time. And, you know, I grew up where you know it was bacon or bacon or sausage and eggs for breakfast and or cereal for breakfast and i and i still find myself really boxed in by that it's difficult for me to eat other foods for breakfast even though i know that just about anything else besides eggs is a better choice and to have raised my daughter who's now 15 and to have her totally willing to get up and eat anything for breakfast, because that's what we try to do. And she's just like, like, well, what are you gonna eat for breakfast today? And she's like, well, let's see, we got some leftover chicken, we got some, you know, she goes through the, the list of options. And, and it's just, I think that's really cool. And as we, you know, try to embrace other cultures and their habits and their you know what I'm trying to say, the things that they do as, as a routine way of living to try to embrace the healthy aspects of that really broadens our horizons. And I'm going to go back and look for that podcast because I'd be very interested to get, to I have listened to several, but I I did not come across that one.
0: Oh, yeah. And you know, if you email her, she'll email you right back. She's a very nice girl. But yeah, she talked extensively about that and making wine and uh-huh. yeah, pr- pretty interesting. Uh, and she's lived all over the world. So she embraces all cultures. Oh, that's awesome. very cool. That's awesome. So, I guess, you know, kind of getting toward the end, would you have like some last thoughts or, you know, say somebody's getting into fermentation, say somebody comes to one of your workshops, you know, what do you usually tell people, uh, somebody that's like brand new?
1: Well, uh, I just, you know, I tell them that, you know, pretty much what I told you that I think that anaerobic fermenting is just vastly better than any other option. But if that's not an option and you aren't reactive, to mold or yeasts that any kind of fermenting is going to be better than no fermenting at all and you know that it's just really important to start and I I would say you know start carefully I mean as far as eating it goes if you haven't if if your poor gut has never seen a healthy living microbe besides what comes in on your the, the vastly low numbers that come in on your fresh food Then you really want to start out gently. You know, you want to bite the first time you you do it. And then the second time you, you know, just a bite for a few days each meal and then slowly increase it. Start slow. I work on a couple of Facebook groups to support people on a health journey. And one of the things that I see too often is people come back and yeah, I had a half a cup of sauerkraut and it was finally done. And and they hadn't done anything else. And, And they just have a really, really powerful detox reaction to it. And It's just, it is powerful living food and to take it easy, start out gently, work your body up to adapting to the, to the support that those micro, the support and the cleansing that those microorganisms are going to do. And, uh, you know, so that's what I would say. I think that if I have to leave with any message, it's ferment and then eat carefully, slowly start, you know, and a wide variety. So go ahead and ferment a variety of vegetables because you'll get a different profile of bacteria from each one. And that broadens the landscape of what can happen in your gut to help cleanse you and, and make you healthy.
0: Yeah. I'd say that's definitely good advice. And, you know, I, I definitely support that. Anything that makes people healthier. And then at the same time, getting all these awesome flavors.
1: Oh yeah. Man, the flavors are amazing, aren't they?
0: Yeah. And, and uh, like you said, with the probiotic jar, probably even better than, you know, what I'm doing now with the old school Mason jar method.
1: I think so. <laughs> I, I just, always felt like ferments that had whey in them had a cheesy, kind of a cheesy flavor. And of course, you know, I wasn't able to eat very much of it. and I didn't feel good when I did. So it didn't, I didn't have very much of it. But I was really struck by the crisp, clear flavors of an anaerobically fermented food without the starters in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, This is something I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've I've actually learned quite a bit, you know, just from talking to you. You're definitely so knowledgeable.
1: Thank you. I, I don't feel real knowledgeable because I'm constantly <laughs> surprising things. So, thank you for saying that.
0: So, say, you know, some of the listeners, they want to follow you, they want to check out the probiotic jar. Um, can you just give them your website? And, you know, do you have any other social media kind of things that they can uh, go to to follow what you're doing?
1: Sure. Uh, we have our website is probioticjar.com and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash probiotic jar. And, uh, we do have a Pinterest page. I don't keep that quite as updated, but I do try to do that periodically, just to add the new things that have come up. Um, keep an eye on the recipe section. I try to add new recipes every couple of weeks. Sometimes they come kind of in a rush. I get three or four of them up, up at once. So, so yeah, we're on Facebook. I try to update Facebook once a week, but that's kind of tough to, to keep up with. You can reach me through email service at probioticjar.com to ask questions, that sort of thing, or, or post on the Facebook page either way. So, you
0: also have videos on there, a four hour fermentation course almost on video? Yes,
1: it's a Fermenting One and Fermenting Two live class that was recorded. And it is, uh, it it was on sale just through the weekend and now it's back to its regular price. And it's a streaming forever access, one price. So, you can watch it as many times as you need to.
0: Wow, very cool.
1: So, yeah, I just, Linda is an outstanding, she's everybody's favorite teacher. I just, she's so warm. She's, she just, You know, she strikes you as being somebody's grandmother, and she's just wonderful to learn from. And
0: I think I've seen her on one of the the free videos that you have on your website.
1: Yes, she's actually featured on our homepage right now.
0: Yeah, people have to check that out. Yeah, that's great. So everything we've talked about on today's show will be in the show notes. And I invite everybody to come out to fermentationpodcast.com, leave some comments. You know, if you have any questions for Karen, definitely check out Karen's site, probioticjar.com. There is a bunch of how-to videos. There's over 20 recipes, and they all have beautiful photos attached to them. And of course, if you're in the market for a better way to ferment, then I highly recommend the probiotic jar. I'm using it myself now. So Karen, I really appreciate you coming on the show and you know having a, a great conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here.
0: All right. This has been Paul Bates from the Fermentation Podcast, along with Karen Ross, encouraging you to put fermentation into practice, ferment responsibly, and get out there and create some culture.